A little over 2,000 years ago in a town off the beaten path in Israel called Nazareth, there was a teenage girl named Mary. And in this town on a very ordinary day, just maybe like today, wasn't expecting much, something happened that changed the course of history forever, changed her life, and changed our lives today. Back then, an angel, Gabriel, was sent by God to Mary, a teenage girl in Nazareth, to tell her that the Son of God, the Messiah, that all of Israel had been waiting for was not only going to come, but was going to be born from her, that she would conceive a son by the Holy Spirit and give birth to the Messiah. This is a huge, huge deal. Sometimes when we see stories like the Christmas story, we'll look at this and we just kind of assume this was normal for Mary because it's Mary but she was just a teenage girl and this was not a normal day. When we think about that encounter with the angel Gabriel, he also told her and later Joseph exactly what to name the baby. There were two specific names. One was Jesus indicating what he came to do to bring salvation to his people. And the other name was Emmanuel, which indicated who he was. He was God himself with his people. Jesus and Emmanuel. The entire gospel and the entire point of Christianity is packed into those two names. He came to save us, and he did that by becoming one of us. When we think about this story, it is an odd story, because now we have to think about that Mary is engaged, engaged to Joseph. They're betrothed, and this is a very big deal. Now she'd had this encounter with an angel, and imagine trying to figure out a way to tell your fiance that you're pregnant in the midst of all this, and then how? Joseph, obviously, he sees she's pregnant, and we see in, in the story that he, because he's an honorable person, doesn't want to embarrass her, but he plans on uh, divorcing her and calling off the engagement. But an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, and in this dream, the angel tells Joseph the exact same thing, that God had also chosen him to father the coming Messiah, the Son of God, and that his name would be Jesus and Emmanuel. Joseph, uh, I mean, it's, it's a very heavy thing. Like when you picture being Mary, and now you picture being Joseph, this is a very big deal because Joseph just the day before was looking at Mary saying, are you sure you're telling me? He sees that she's pregnant, and he says, who's the father? And then she gives the Sunday school answer, kinda, right? The Lord, and that's not believable. But now Joseph has a dream, and his answer is going to be the exact same thing to all the unbelieving people around. So Mary is pregnant, and all the months go by. And in the ninth month, Caesar Augustus, we read in Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus orders a census for the entire Roman Empire. And Joseph and Mary are ordered to go back to Bethlehem, the city of David, because Joseph is a descendant of David, and they had to go back to the land or cities of their forefathers for the census. So she's nine months pregnant. It's a 70-mile journey, a four- to five-day journey, especially in, that, in those conditions with a donkey. She's nine months pregnant, and I know what every guy in here is thinking. <laughs> Poor Joseph. I mean, that's a, that's, I'm joking, it's a joke. That's a long journey. All the ladies are like, I, I, did not, I should not have come to this church. Um, <laughs> it's a joke. They get to Bethlehem, and, and, and we know this story. 
they're, they're looking for a place to stay. And because of the census and probably because of their slower travel, they're getting their last and there's no space. There's no room in any of their relatives' houses, their friends' houses. There's no room, the Bible tells us, in the inn. And finally, over the course of that night, you can imagine it's cold and, and Mary is going into labor and she's starting contractions and Joseph is frantic and she's crying and, and he begins to be emotional and they're trying to find a place and finally someone offers them a stable. We don't know for sure what this building or cave was, but we do know that it facilitated as a stable for animals. And so you can imagine being Joseph and Mary and trying to figure out all this stuff and wrap your mind around what's going on. But Jesus was born in the middle of that scenario, in Bethlehem, on a cold floor, in a stable. While this is happening, an angel appears to some shepherds on the hillside in Bethlehem. I was actually in Bethlehem a couple months ago with many of you, we went on a trip to Israel and I was standing in Bethlehem on one of these hillsides looking up into the sky and imagining what it was like that night as this angel descends over the shepherds and proclaims that the Messiah, the savior of the world has been born and that this is good news, that joy had finally come to the earth and we'll talk in a few minutes about why the angel appeared to shepherds. But all the while that this is going on, we also know there's another part of the story where there are wise men coming from the east. They may have been coming from Persia. They may have been coming from the area of ancient Babylon. But what we do know is there are wise men, and they're also called magi. Magi is an Old Testament word, and we see that appear actually in the story of Daniel. Daniel, as a teenager, was in exile in Babylon, kidnapped from, from Israel. Daniel, we know in the story, rose up into the ranks all the way up in Babylon and became the head magi. So many theologians and scholars believe that the wise men knew something about a prophecy and a rising star because of the prophecies of the Old Testament and they're piecing things together, remembering all of the years before, the hundreds of years before the knowledge passed down from Daniel. So they had the faith to start this trek and go all the way there. And through a series of events, Months of traveling, they finally find their way to where Jesus was in Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph, and they bring the famous gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we finally get the scene of the famous nativity that we're so familiar seeing. That's the Christmas story, the fast version, the Christmas story in a nutshell. And I want us to look at this again, the Christmas story, and I want us to look at what this actually reveals to us. It reveals so much, but I chose three aspects of this, three things that the Christmas story reveals today because all of Christianity hangs on what happened on Christmas morning a little over 2,000 years ago. God became man to save us from our sins. The first thing that the Christmas story reveals is the power of expectation, the power of expectation. We know, we experience the power of expectation all the time. So tonight when we go to bed, it's Christmas Eve. Tonight when we go to bed, if you have little kids in the house, Mandy and I have four kids, especially when they were littler, there, there was no need for an alarm clock on Christmas morning, ever. There was no need. There was no need for parents to have an alarm clock on Christmas morning because your kids are filled so much with expectation. There is an internal alarm clock that will go off in the middle of the night. Just like we saw in that video and they will wake the parents up, why? Because of expectation for the next morning. All the weeks leading up to Christmas morning, they're shaking gifts and trying to find them in the house and all of these different things, right? 
But it's a completely different story on the first day of school after Christmas break in January. There is no expectation, there's only dread. You cannot set up enough alarm clocks. You can't set up enough little things with snooze. I mean, they are going to sleep and you're dragging them out of bed. Why? Because expectation has power. And this Christmas story reveals the power of expectation. And I wanna look at it through the lens of the wise men or the magi. In Matthew chapter two, verses one through six, I wanna read this short little segment of their story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi or wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. I mean, they're brave. I don't know if they're really that wise of men because they're walking into a palace with an existing king saying, where's the real one? Where's the real one? And he was disturbed and all all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. This is Herod gathering the Jewish scholars and priests. Where's the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet, prophet has written. And this is a quote from Micah in the Old Testament, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So I wanna set the stage for this, but I want you to think, can you imagine the level of expectation and faith the wise men had to have in order to pack up all of their belongings and go on what many scholars believe round trip could have been by at the time it was all done, a six month trip. This is a lot of faith and a lot of expectation about what they might find. But when they first got there, They were looking for the king in the wrong place. How often do we do the exact same thing? We've got the faith and expectation to want to find God, but over and over again, we keep on finding ourselves looking for God, finding a king in the wrong place. I wanna set this scene for you really quickly, what's happening. So the wise men go to Herod. He says, well, who are you looking for? The king of the Jews. All the prophecies are, have told us about it. His star rose and we're here to find him. This is making Herod nervous. So he gets the Jewish leaders and he's saying, these guys are telling me that your Messiah, and essentially his, but he wasn't really a Jew. So our Messiah is supposed to be born. You would think that the Jewish scholars and leaders might stop and wonder, well, this is the best news ever, but they don't. You can imagine them coming out with this big, this big vase, this big jar, and they're pulling the scroll out. They open Micah 5, and they're looking through this. They read this section. They're emotionless. They're stoic. They put it back in. They tell them where the Messiah will be born, and they leave, and Herod is still nervous, but the Jewish leaders leave. Why? This is what's interesting. Herod and his counselors <clears throat> had what the wise men lacked, the scriptures that specifically talked about the coming of Christ but they lacked what the wise men had, the desire and expectation to actually find him. The wise men were essentially saying, we believe the king of the Jews has been born, we don't know exactly where, but we want to go worship him. Herod's religious advisors were saying, we know exactly where the Messiah will be born, but we have no intention of going there. This is mind-blowing when you look at this from the angle of these were the Jewish leaders 
anxiously awaiting their Messiah and they don't even have enough expectation to go and look for him. Why? Because it is very possible to know the Bible well, yet be numb to its true message. We can know all the things we should know and still miss what Jesus wants for us. There's essentially three groups of people in here today. One group might be like the wise men where you have all the faith and expectation you're wanting to believe. You think all of this points to something beyond this world, all the the darkness in the world, you believe there's a light, but you lack the details to know what it truly means to have a relationship with Jesus. You're in the right place. There's also a group of people, you might be more like the Jewish leaders where we've grown up in church, we've been to church a lot. I know, I know quite a bit of scripture. I would consider myself a religious person, but I've found myself in the last few years lacking the expectation to receive from Christ what he really wants to give me, to really truly find him. Or some of us might be like King Herod when we hear about Jesus coming, when we hear about Jesus wanting a relationship with us, when we hear about the Messiah being here and celebrating Christmas, all we think about with Christianity is it's a threat to my lifestyle. It's a threat to my plans, what I want. I don't want Jesus near me because he's just a threat, and that's how Herod viewed him that day. The wise men eventually found what they were looking for, but probably what they weren't expecting, that they didn't find Jesus in a palace, they found him in an animal's manger. An animal's manger. So before I go to the second thing the Christmas story reveals, I wanna ask you this question. What happens when you follow a star and that star leads you to a stable? What happens when you follow what God says but you still find yourself today, it might be in a situation that you never wanted to be in, a financial situation, a relational situation. You might be in here experiencing pain that you've never experienced before, and you're sitting here saying, just like the wise men, I followed that star. I had expectation at one time in my life, but that star took me to a scenario that I was not expecting. It took me to a stable. But the Bible teaches us in Isaiah that God's ways are higher than our ways, and his way of thinking is different than our way of thinking, because the reality is, even though the star took them to a stable, Jesus was in the stable. God was in the middle of the mess. The second thing the Christmas story reveals to us today is the purposes of God. And continuing with this thought of a star leading us to a stable, I wanna look at this through the angle and through the eyes of Joseph. I've never preached a Christmas message through the eyes of Joseph. He kind of gets overlooked. He actually has no spoken lines in Scripture, things spoken about him, the story told of him. It's easy to skip him, but remember that these were very real human beings experiencing very real emotions in these very real uncertain circumstances. But can you imagine the perspective that Joseph had on all of this? He was just minding his own business in Nazareth nine months ago, preparing for a wedding, looking at Mary as the joy of his life, just looking forward to a normal, laid-back life in Nazareth, and here comes God. You know how he does. Here comes God. I've got big plans for you. But I want you to think about that night in Bethlehem. He finally finds this stable, and he's... He rests Mary down on the ground. It might be wet from the water, from the animals spilling on the ground. There's hay, it smells. It's cold outside. 
He may have lit a fire and he might have done as much as get some warm water and maybe one semi-clean cloth. And if you can put yourself in Joseph's shoes, your wife is crying, she's in labor, she's in pain, this baby's about to be born, but you're supposed to be the husband, the provider, the one that takes care of her, and this is, this is all you could come up with? Joseph may have been thinking, I'm, I'm, I've done her wrong. How could I have allowed this to happen? And I imagine that night, this isn't in scripture, but if you look at the human aspect of this, I imagine something like this could have happened. In a moment where Mary was in a moment of peace between contractions, I imagine maybe Joseph walking outside the stable just to get his head on straight and take a, a deep breath of fresh air outside. I imagine him with tears streaming down his face and he's looking up to the sky in Bethlehem. And I imagine him saying something and having this conversation with God, saying, God, I've trusted you I have trusted you this whole time. You sent your angel to me in a dream. I have followed, I believed, I obeyed. And looking at this, I feel like a failure as a husband. And if I'm being honest, God, it's starting to feel like you have failed too. What you spoke to us is not happening. I can imagine Joseph looking up to God, maybe with real emotion and some intensity saying, I was picturing going to Jerusalem. I was picturing the baby being born around family and, and a parade happening because this baby is going to be in the, the Messiah. Did we do something wrong, God? Did you change your mind? The purpose you had for our life, the purpose for the baby, the purpose for me, the plans for our family, did we mess up or did you? Because this isn't right. We might look at a prayer like that and think, I haven't said those exact words, but I've said something very similar because we've all found ourselves at different times following God, finding ourselves at a crossroads and in a situation where we're wondering, God, two things, either I messed up or you, but this isn't right. But Joseph that night was thinking things like, God, I'm a, I'm a carpenter. I plan things. I like to know the end result before I start. I measure twice before I cut once. And this plan, it's not working. It's not working. Joseph in that moment gets real with God and you can imagine that story of a conversation like that happened. He comes back into the stable and this baby is born. You look at this and you start wondering, is God still in control? Is what God spoke over Joseph really happening? Is what God spoke over you still available? The purposes of God, are they still, are they still real in your life? Are his plans still available? Because if you're a believer, you think back to those times where you know, I know God spoke this over me. I know, I know that I know that this was God's will for my life. And Joseph is wondering the same thing. But I love this passage from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.12, it says, this is God speaking. It says, I am actively watching over my word to fulfill it. I'm actively watching over my word to fulfill it. This is a promise from God. He is actively watching over what he's promised you his purpose for your life, his plan for your life. He is actively watching over it, even in the moments where it feels like he's abandoned it, just like Joseph that day. And the irony of all of it, as maybe Joseph was praying that, looking up to God, saying, God, where are you? The irony is that God was in the stable, humbling himself, humbling himself to step out of eternity and be born as a baby in the middle of the stable. Our purpose is never found outside of God's purpose. It's never found outside of God's purpose. It's only found within it. 
You have destiny, purpose in your life. You have a plan for your life, but your purpose and fulfillment and what God has destined you to do as your creator is only truly found in God's purpose. You look at this story and you think, man, it kind of seems like Joseph and Mary had to go a lot of places. They had to leave Nazareth. They had to go to Bethlehem. They had to eventually go to Egypt. They had to go from Egypt back to Bethlehem. And then they had to go from Bethlehem back to Nazareth. They're having to go all these places. And you're looking at Jesus going, man, even Jesus as a baby in the womb is having to go everywhere Joseph and Mary go. And if you're Joseph or Mary, you're starting to wonder, God, are you still in control? But what they're forgetting is this. Jesus was never following Joseph and Mary anywhere. Joseph and Mary, although they were carrying him, he was carrying them. Everywhere they went was ordained by God. Everywhere we go is ordained by God. What God is doing is for all of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, he is bringing that purpose together because he is sovereign. Romans 8, 28 says exactly that. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his what? Purpose. The purposes of God sometimes can be found in a stable But just trust, even in the times where it looks like there is no good and there may not be any good with our own eyes, God is still good and he is still in your stable. Joseph was challenged to believe that God had done all of this and orchestrated it, and so are we. Joseph was challenged to welcome Jesus as his savior, and so are we. Joseph was challenged to devote the rest of his life to Jesus, and so are we. The question is, are we willing to? Lastly, the Christmas story reveals the promise of good news. The promise of good news. And I wanna look at this through the eyes of the shepherds. Through the eyes of the shepherds. Luke 2, 8 through 12 is the account that I mentioned earlier. And it says this, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. And this is the part I want you to focus on for all people. I'm gonna come back to that. Good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Can you imagine they're all excited? They're going, yes, yes. Where can we find him wrapped in cloths? Yes, that makes sense. He's a baby. Where? In a animal feeding trough. This is the moment, though, where they may not have been that surprised. They may have been, although surprised, they may have been more emotional in this moment. Because you have to wonder if you were a shepherd, because shepherds were the lowest in society. Their witness was not even allowed in the court of law. They could not witness in court. They were considered unclean by Jewish traditions because of the job that they had and and what they worked with with sheep and all the different things that came with that. So they have to be wondering why would an angel, why would God send an angel to us to go see this baby? And then he says in a manger, and it's emotional because they're thinking the God of the universe is so humble that he comes down and he makes a way for all people. For all people, no matter what our background is, where our place is in society, what our economic status is, what our race is, where we're from, what language we speak, our God is for all people. Luke 2, 16 through 18, just a few verses later says, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was was lying in the manger. 
When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The good news means he can meet any person in any place at any time. That's why he went to the shepherds. Why? Why shepherds? Why not royalty? Sometimes I think, God, if, if I really wanted this, this new thing called Christianity to take off, I mean, why not born right now with social media to broadcast it to the whole world? Why not right now send an angel down and descend to just be shining bright in Bethlehem so people can film it and post it on social media? Why not now? Why back then? Because God was making it a point to come in the most humble manner, isolated, lonely, dark way imaginable. So when he walked on this earth, Jesus walked on this earth and he inter interacted with people, he would be willing to say and able to say, I've been there. I've been that poor. I've been pushed out. I've experienced pain and loss and betrayal. The God of the universe had to come in the lowliest manner so he could empathize with every person who would ever live and so he could be the God that can actually say, I feel what you're feeling and I'm with you and I'll never leave you. The gospel is good news and the gospel is the message of Jesus. And again, it can meet any person in any place at any time. I heard a story not too long ago and it's quickly becoming one of my favorites, especially around Christmas. There is a singer and, and songwriter and hymn writer from the 1800s named Ira Sankey. And he's famous for writing many, many, many songs that were sung all through the 1800s. And, and he was also famous for traveling with D.L. Moody and all of his revivals um, at that period of time. There was one Christmas Eve night where Sankey was on a steamboat going up the Delaware River. Snow flurries were falling and multiple accounts of this story, a very true story. Snowflakes were falling and people were rejoicing and, and a group of people recognized him and they came up to him and they said, sir, please, 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 sing your famous song, the shepherd's song. Please, 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 will you sing that? So the steamboat on the, on the top floor quieted down and he began to sing this song. And before he could get to the end of it, there was a disheveled man from the back of the crowd that pushed his way to the front of the crowd, was interrupting the very end of the song and he said, sir, 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 Mr. Sankey, please can I ask you a question? Please can I ask you a question? And he was frantic. So he said, okay, and he invited him to ask him a question and loud enough for everyone to hear, he said, I have to know something. I have to know something. Did you fight in the war? Referring to the Civil War. Did you fight in the war? And he said, yes, I, I fought in the war. And he said, back in 1862, in June of that year, were you on a field in Virginia at that time, in June, with a moonlit sky, and back then, could you possibly remember if you were the man that was singing this song as you were walking the picket line that night? And surprised, he takes a step back, and Sankey nodded his head and said, yes, I, I remember that night vividly. I'm that man. And he told him, he said, I was in the Confederate Army, and that night I heard singing, and I walked to the front of the battle lines when everyone else was asleep, and I saw you walking in the moonlight as clear as day, and I lifted my musket. And I was aiming it right at you and had a clear shot and was about to pull the trigger when I started listening to what you were singing. He said, you started singing about an angel 
that was telling these shepherds about the good news that had been born. And this good news would end up being the good shepherd. And I'll never forget those words. And as you kept singing into the night, the words kept piercing my heart. And for the first time in the entire war, I felt conviction and a heaviness on me that I couldn't explain, I couldn't shake it. And as I held that musket aimed at your head, my arms began to shake and I heard a voice say, put it down. So I put it down. And he said, I was never the same. I didn't know what to do about it, but I was shaken up. And for the rest of the war, I didn't know what to do. And I'm always wondering, what is this good news? Who is this good shepherd? I need someone to tell me. And he said, I need you to tell me, do all these people know about the good shepherd and what you're singing? And could that good shepherd still accept someone who has done what I've done, who has fought for what I fought for? I need this weight and guilt off of me. And Sankey brought him near. And he said this famous little line that I said a second ago. He said, the God that we serve, the good shepherd, will meet anyone at any time and in any place. He said, there are no outcasts in the kingdom of God because we serve the good shepherd. And right there, yes, right there on that ship, they got down on their knees. The crowd gathers around and lays hands on him and Sankey leads him to Christ on that ship. The guilt and shame was off. And he stood and looked at the crowd, Sankey, and he said, always remember, the God that we serve receives you, anyone, anytime, and in any place. I wanna end today telling you that exact same thing. The God we serve might be speaking to you today. As you see this today and hear the words from the word of God today and the worship and singing, you might have come for a certain reason just to appease someone to attend just because it's Christmas Eve, but could you for a moment just consider the possibility that it was God who brought you here, just like he brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, just like he orchestrated the shepherds to be in the field, just like he orchestrated the wise men to come from afar, just like he orchestrated you to be here today. Could it be the expectation you might be feeling now, knowing that God does have a purpose for your life and that purpose is the good news. Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity, stepped into this world, took on human form and lived a form and lived a life fully God and fully man. He knew that we could never, we could never be the ultimate sacrifice for ourselves. We could never live a perfect life. We could never do it, but there was one who could, and it was Jesus. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross out of his love because the ancient eternal law says the punishment for sin is death. But it also says in scripture that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the gift that God gave us to where we look at the cross and say, I have a savior that loves me so much. He came and lived a life as me, experiencing my pain, my doubt, my sorrow, lived a perfect life going to the cross. And the Bible says all we have to do is call on the name of Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and we'll be saved. People ask the question all the time, what do I have to do? What do I have to work for to be saved? How could I ever be good enough? The reason I'm a Christian and the reason why I love Christianity so much is because God looks at us and says, you owe me no work at all. I did the work of salvation when I sent my son 
And all God says for us to do is believe. Salvation is for anyone, at any time, and in any place. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes today, I wanna pray over all of you today, and especially those that might be in the room, and you might be sensing in your heart and wondering, am I like the wise men? I've got faith for something, but I needed the details, and now I've got them. Or you might be like the religious leaders where I know everything I thought I knew, but my life hasn't shifted or changed. Maybe I viewed Jesus as a threat. Maybe I was like the shepherds and viewed as an outcast or Joseph and wondering if God's purposes were still alive. Whoever you are today, he's here for you, for you. I'm gonna count to three in a moment and then I'm gonna include you in this prayer. But today I'm not gonna have you stand up or come forward or anything like that. But if you would like to be included in a prayer to receive Christ as your savior, in a moment when I count to three, I'm just gonna ask you to lift your hand up for a moment, just a second, and you can put it right back down. I just like to know who I'm praying for, and I also believe there's just something about uh, taking a physical step to show what's happening on the inside, going public, and, and I just really believe strongly in that, but I'll tell you this, there's no better day than today than to surrender our lives to Jesus. No mistakes are too big, no past is too dark. You're not too old and you're not too young. I received Christ when I was six years old in a church service, and I'll never forget that day. If you would like today to be included in this final prayer, on the count of three, if you would just raise your hand right where you're at. One, two, three. Just right where you're at, I would love to see your hands. Thank you guys, thank you, thank you. Thank you guys, right here, I see you, thank you. Thank you so much, amazing, thank you. I'm gonna pray, and, and I want you to know this, my prayer doesn't save anyone, and really, uh, it's not even a prayer that saves anyone, it's a belief. It's a declaration from our heart. It's acknowledging that Jesus is Savior and Lord and saying, Jesus, I know I'm not gonna be perfect, but I'm gonna be dedicated today. I wanna give my life to you. Pray with me if you raise your hand today. Father, we thank you so much for today. And Jesus, we thank you for stepping into this world. And what we celebrate today is the fact that you loved us so much that you came. You are Jesus and Emmanuel. You are the God of salvation and the God who became us the God who is with us that I can have relationship with. We invite you into our lives, Jesus. We surrender our life to you. We believe that you died on the cross for our sins. We acknowledge our sin. And in this moment, we declare to turn from it. God, I know I'll make mistakes, but I'm asking for your grace to pick me up. And today I'm just changing directions and following you. Come into our lives, Jesus. Cleanse us from the inside out. We thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.